So this is the second uh, in the series that we're doing on the parables of Jesus. Um, you know, in light of Talia's comments about the Russian church, I increasingly think that in the world that we live in today, in the era of Trump and the massive unfaithfulness of the church, that really the only thing we have to offer is the story and example of Jesus. And uh, I see, I guess, this series of talks on the parables as an attempt for us to continue to reorient ourselves around the story of Jesus in order to find ground to stand, really, in the current uh, world where the church is, is so captured by political agendas that bear very little resemblance to, to him. So studying the parables is, is quite important for understanding Jesus because something like 30% of Jesus' recorded teaching in the Gospels comes to us in parables. And uh, that was really quite unique for a Jewish teacher to, and, for, and, and indeed for any, any uh, religious teacher at all thereafter to use parables as his primary mode of communication in the way that Jesus did. Uh, on the surface, the parables seem like very straightforward, simple stories, even more so when they're translated in the message. Um, but probably more scholarship has been devoted to the parables than to any other aspect of the gospel tradition over the last generation or so. And I think it's become very clear that the parables are actually a very sophisticated method that Jesus used in order to confront his hearers with the unexpected presence of God in the world, which they could easily miss because it was dressed up in a man called Jesus, and as a way of eliciting from people the kind of reactions in their own heart to what God was doing, because stories have that ability to really get beneath our defences and really trigger what's really going on in terms of our priorities and our desires and our, uh, our ambitions and so on. So I know that Justin uh, gave a talk last time about why the parables and how we should approach them. I just want to make three introductory comments before we look at this particular parable uh, in more detail. I think the first thing to say about the parables is they were all intended by Jesus to elucidate what he once called the mystery of the kingdom of God. So the disciples came to Jesus at one point and they said to him, why do you talk in parables so much? And his response was to say that this was given in order to illuminate the mystery or secret of the kingdom of God. It was a way of inviting his hearers to look at the world through a particular frame of reference where they could see God at work in their midst. And the parables were an attempt to elicit this awareness of this remarkable thing that God was doing in the life and work of Jesus, which Jesus said was the presence of God's kingdom in their midst. So the parables are all about the kingdom of God. Some of the parables even begin by giving the clue to that, by saying, you know, what shall we compare the kingdom of God to? Uh, it is like, and then a parable follows. The second thing to remember about the parables is that in order to convey this message about what God was doing in the world, the parables draw on very familiar everyday features of first century Palestinian life. So the world of the parables is the world of farming and feasting, of weddings and fishing and travel and unemployment and crime and imprisonment and baking bread and going to family celebrations and so on. There is a complete lack of fantasy 
in the parables of Jesus. There are no superhuman figures dressed in red capes that swoop in at the last minute to, to, to bring God's saving power to work. There's none of that. They're all just very ordinary stories. They're more like newspaper stories, really, than, than they are fairy stories. And that's important because at a rhetorical level, that everydayness about the stories helped to draw people into the, to the world that Jesus was depicting. They recognized the world as their world. Uh, it, was, it was their everyday um, experience of life that was being portrayed. It helped them get involved in the story and get caught, getting caught up in the drama. So it had that kind of rhetorical function. But at a theological level, it highlighted the important fact that God was not really to be found just in religious behavior. God was to be found in everyday life, not just at the temple or at the church, as we would say, or in heaven or in a spiritual retreat or out in the wilderness with John the Baptist running around dressed in strange clothes and doing strange things. God is not to be found in religious performance. Primarily, God is to be found in the stuff of, every, of, every, of everyday life. And so the, the kind of secular nature of the parables is actually quite important in terms of its perspective on where it is that we experience God and God's work. The third thing is that this familiar true-to-life picture usually contains some surprising and unexpected twist, even a shocking twist that upsets or reverses people's expectations. I remember years ago reading a book on the parables and the person used the idea of, of, of a crack in the realism. So the, the, the parables is a realistic mirror of life and suddenly it cracks. Uh, you, something happens in the story that's not realistic at all. It's not expected by any means in terms of the way ordinary everyday life works. And we often miss this because we are culturally and historically so far removed from the first century story, uh, the first century world that the stories are evoking. So things like, I mean, some, sometimes we, we, uh, we recognize it, the pay scale in the parable of, of the vineyard where people work all day and they get whatever it was, $10 or something, <laughs> um, and other people come in at 4 o'clock and they get the same, get the same reward. And suddenly that, you know, that shocks everybody. That's unfair. That's unjust. Or the, um, the size of the harvest in the parable of the sower where the seed is sown and it sometimes produces 30-fold and sometimes 60-fold and sometimes 100-fold, whatever that means, a 100% return on the amount of seed that's put in. And when you realise that for a first century farmer, the best you could expect on a bumper harvest was between six and tenfold return, then suddenly these, these harvests are miraculous. You know, any farmer would sit up and take notice of that, at that story. Or the, the two parables I know, I know most about, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you know, something really shocking happens in terms of this hated outsider displaying such... Uh, love towards his enemy, or the father of the prodigal son, you know, the picture of the father hoiking up his robes and running in public in a way that would have been you know, a scandal, really, for any other oriental gentleman to behave. Or the, uh, the pathetic, insulting excuses that are offered by the invitees to the wedding feast. 
Now, I can't come to your wedding because I've just bought a field and I need to go and check it out. Or I can't come to your wedding because I've got some new oxen and I need to go and check them. It's a bit like saying I can't come to your wedding because there's something good on TV that night. Uh, in terms of the rules of hospitality, it's just shocking to behave that way. So this is, this is very common in perhaps not all the parables, but in, in most of the parables there is this, this sudden shocking reverse of expectations. And that's intended, I think, to cause the hearers to sit up and take notice that this story is not just about something that happened the other day. Uh, that is sometimes so realistic that people think maybe Jesus is just describing something that happened the other day. To, to say there's something going on here that you really need to pay attention to, to kind of penetrate beneath the surface of the realistic portrayal and, and get to the heart of what it is I'm trying to communicate. And the, 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 the sort of shock factor had that effect. It also, I think, was a warning that when you did attend to what God was doing, you are likely to be very shocked by it, to be surprised by it, to be appalled by it, uh, that God is not just a familiar kind of uh, puppet God that behaves exactly the way we would do if we were in God's shoes, that God is always overturning the apple carts. God's always doing things that no self-respecting God ought to do. And I think within the parables, the, the shocking nature of the event is a, is a kind of warning to that. Now, I think nowhere is this more obvious than in the parable of the unforgiving servant. The imagery of the story is uh, very familiar to hearers. It draws on the everyday world of masters and slaves, of money and business, of indebtedness, and its dire consequences. But in the midst of this realistic picture, certain surprising things happen that alert the hearers to something deeper being communicated by the story. And I reckon that I found at least four shocking elements in the story, four things that um, would have caused some degree of um, surprise, perhaps even horror, when people listen to it. The story is about a king who requires his agents to settle up their accounts with him. The agents are called in the story slaves. The Greek word is douloi, regular common word for slaves. But it's not clear whether this term is used literally or metaphorically. If the term is intended literally, then the douloi, the slaves, are common domestic household slaves, members of the king's own immediate palace uh, retinue. However, this creates a couple of problems. One is, how could a common slave end up owing such a huge amount of money to the king? 10,000 talents. And secondly, why would the king threaten to punish the slave by selling him into slavery if he was already a slave? So the word is perhaps intended metaphorically rather than literally. That everybody who serves an absolute monarch is kind of a slave to that monarch. Uh, that the, the figure in the parable is probably more intended to reflect a high-ranking government official or a high-ranking civil servant. Even that word civil servant shows this, this sort of... Um, um, way of thinking lingers on to our day. There's not much like a servant in the civil service, but 
technically they're servants of the monarch, and so we still call them servants. Uh, so the, 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 the civils, oh, sorry, the, the, the figures in this uh, parable are more likely to be the kind of um, government figures that helped the king run his empire rather than people who were technically slaves. So like all good stories, it unfolds in three scenes. In the first scene, the king summons one of his servants and orders him to repay the debt of 10,000 talents he owes. Now, it's important to recognize, and this is where I take issue with this message, it's important to recognize how astronomical this debt is. The word talent was the largest unit of currency in the ancient Near Eastern world. In fact, I understand it was a weight, a weight of silver, rather than, a, um, rather than just an abstract figure. So a talent was the largest unit of currency available. 10,000 is the highest numeral you can go to in Greek. That's the highest sort of, as far as you can go. One talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. A denarius was a standard day's wages for a first century laborer. So he worked for a day, he got one denarius. Which means if my maths is correct, one talent was equivalent to 16 years' wages. One talent. Which I, I checked this on Google, we found out what the, um, what the average uh, salary is in New Zealand today, and it came to $688,000. That's one talent, $688,000. This servant owed 10,000 talents, which is the equivalent of 160,000 years' wages. And I couldn't work that out. In my ass. Um, it's probably up there around a trillion, whatever a trillion is. Um, but it's, you know, it's just it's huge. To give you some idea of how, the debt, how great the debt was, 10,000 talents was roughly equivalent to King David's contributions to building the first temple in 1 Chronicles 29.4. It was greater than the total debt incurred by the armies of Alexander the Great, which Plutarch puts at 9,750 talents. It was 12 times greater than the total Roman tax earnings for the whole of Palestine in the year 4 BC. I don't know where I got these figures, which was around 800 talents. So 10,000 talents is not $100,000, as the message implies. It's a staggering level of indebtedness. In fact, it could be even greater still because the Greek phrase 10,000 talents could be translated as tens of thousands of talents. So it's probably more equivalent to the word zillions. Right? This, this guy is so in debt, we don't really have the number for it. It's just zillions and zillions and zillions of dollars. So for Jesus here is the huge debt itself would have lain on the borderline between reality and fantasy. The figure is conceivable as those parallels I mentioned show, but the idea of any one individual owing so much money to another individual is beyond comprehension. So that's the first shocking element of the story. Now, of course, this is probably going too far, but people will then start to say, well, you know, what kind of scene has Jesus got in mind here? What kind of um, reality could he possibly be alluding to? And one, one suggestion is that uh, the, the, the servant was a governor of one of the imperial provinces. And the way the system worked 
at the time was the governor sometimes got appointed by promising to raise a certain amount of tax. So he bid for the position, and maybe he said, I can get 10,000 talents. And so the king said, right, time to pay up. Um, he, he didn't actually have the money. I mean, that's probably going a bit too far in speculation, but it's, it's one possibility. Anyway, when the king decides to call the debt in, the servant can't pay it. So the king decides to punish the servant by seizing him and his family and all his possessions and selling him into sla- them into slavery. That would do very little to recoup the king's losses because top price for a slave at the time was about one talent. But enslavement was a common way of punishing defaulting debtors. Terrified at such a prospect, the slave, verse 26, fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. He doesn't ask the king to cancel his debt. He asks for more time to pay off his arrears. Now, perhaps he thought he could go and levy some extra taxes and, and get the money, or perhaps he was just simply um, promising the impossible, which is quite common with con artists. But seeing the servant's anguish, the king graciously decides to write off the entire debt. And that's the second shocking detail of the story. The king doesn't merely grant him more time, but shows extravagant mercy and at great cost to himself. So something unexpected has entered into the world of imperial politics and high finance. An unmerited, self-sacrificial act of grace. And of course, you know, when Jesus uses a, the image of a king, he's always pointing to, he always pointing to what kind of king God is. Now, the king would have expected his act of compassion towards his indebted servant to be honoured by that servant in the way he dealt with others. But in the second scene of the story, a contrasting note is sounded. But that same slave as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him in prison until he could pay his whole, uh, repay his debt. He, the image as he, uh, as he went out from the royal presence, out of, out of the court, he happened upon somebody who owed him a hundred daria. That's a piddling debt. That's six months' wages. That's, that could easily be repaid if the person had sufficient time. And so the fellow slave asked, have patience with me and I will repay you. That's the identical request that the slave made to the king himself when he had his debt called in but he remains hard-hearted towards the other slave and repeatedly refuses the plea for mercy, and he throws him into prison. He couldn't sell him into slavery because it wasn't legal to do that if the debt was smaller than what you'd get in return for selling the guy into slavery. If you made a profit, then you couldn't do it. But clapping debtors in prison was a useful way of stopping them absconding and it also would encourage their friends and family to raise the money in order to ransom them from prison uh, and end their suffering. 
So this act of brutality is, I think, the third shocking detail of the story. It's so shocking that even the characters in the story are shocked because they go to the king greatly distressed at the harshness of this slave and they complain to the king about it. And then in the third scene of the story, the king intervenes to correct the injustice. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you for all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you also not show mercy to your fellow slave, even as I showed mercy to you? And in his anger, the Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would repay or pay his entire debt. And this, I guess, is the fourth surprising element in the story, for a, because for a king to revoke his royal decree was a very serious matter in the ancient world. You remember in the book of Daniel about the law of the Medes and the Persians, that even the king was bound by his own law. And that underlines the appalling nature of the servant's failure to show mercy. It was so serious that the king was prepared to rescind his earlier pardon, and the unmerciful servant ends up suffering a worse fate than what he inflicted on the debtor, because he is in prison this time, but with torture. Uh, by the, with the screws, I think the uh, message... <laughs> horrific image. Um, torture was forbidden by Jewish law, but it was regularly practiced by Gentile authorities, partly as a punishment, partly as a way of uncovering any hidden assets they hadn't mentioned, and partly as a way of putting pressure on friends and family again to raise the money to ransom the person who was suffering uh, at the hands of the torturer. Of course, it needs to be said, I'm sure I don't need to say it, it needs to be said that uh, the reference to torture is part of the scenery of the parable, a reflection of the world that Jesus is drawing on. It does not imply divine approval for torture, of course, nor does it imply that God has his own eternal torture chamber somewhere in the universe to use on people who eventually exhaust his patience. Even so, the parable does end with Jesus issuing this somber warning so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I hope he doesn't mean he will also torture you in prison. I think I refer it to mean, so will my Father do to you. Disregard the offer of forgiveness that you've rejected uh, if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So that's the parable. What's it all about, Alfie? Well, I think there are two clues in the text that uh, show us what Jesus is trying to communicate with this story. The first is that Jesus tells a parable in response to Peter's question about how often people who follow Jesus, how often disciples, should forgive those who sin against them. At the time, rabbis taught that people should be prepared to forgive others who offend against them up to three times. If the person does the same deed a fourth time, then you're under no obligation to forgive them because clearly they're not serious about their apology. Peter has been with Jesus long enough to know that Jesus will expect more than do other rabbis when it comes to such issues. And so, 
clever clogs Peter attempts to second guess Jesus by proposing a new perfect limit of sevenfold forgiveness. Should we forgive those who offend us up to seven times, which is more than double the existing standard? But even this remarkable level of generosity is light years removed from where Jesus is at. Jesus said to Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. He's not just adjusting the maths. He is ruling out all calculation when it comes to forgiveness. Jesus' followers are to forgive and go on forgiving without counting the cost. And that, that phrase, 77 times, is a, a clearly an echo back to Genesis 4.24, where Lamech demanded 77-fold vengeance against people who had insulted him. Go back to Genesis 4 story of how violence entered the human community. And Lamech is somebody who, who threatens massive retaliation against anybody who offends them. That's the way of the world. That's the law of this present age. You hit back harder. I keep wanting to not say this, but it's by Donald Trump's way of operating. You hit back harder. That's the way it works. Jesus says to Peter in the kingdom of God, there is a different law at work. It's not 77-fold revenge, it's 77-fold forgiveness. And then he tells the parable to illustrate this demand. So the parable, first clue, the parable is all about forgiveness. It's about how disciples of Jesus are to forgive their brothers or sisters for the hurts and losses they have suffered. That's the first clue. The second clue is that Jesus begins and ends the parable with a reference to God. So the first, uh, the first sentence says, the kingdom of heaven, and that really means the kingdom of the one who dwells in heaven, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And the parable ends by saying, So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So that's a kind of bookend around the story, which shows that the parable is primarily about what God is like. It's about the staggering nature of divine forgiveness. It's about the amazing quality of saving grace that is broken into the world of 77-fold vengeance in the person of Jesus. It's about God's way of operating. And the story, I think, tells us a couple of things about God's forgiveness or God's forgiving grace. One is that it's unbelievably expensive. So human evil, human sin, is like a massive debt of 10,000 talents that we in our own power have no hope of ever repaying. But the God of the story does not simply give more time to make amends, but instead totally and freely writes off the entire debt and that enormous cost to himself. God's grace is unbelievably Expansive. We can do nothing to deserve or earn or repay such grace. It is totally unmerited, what the word means. It is freely given as an expression of God's own boundless 
compassion. But on the other hand, God's grace does come with strings attached. It may be free, but it's not cheap. God's grace is not unconditional. It's actually conditional. To be a recipient of God's grace creates a moral obligation to display that self-same grace to others. So God's grace can never be repaid, so we wouldn't imagine that we should even try to do that. It can't be repaid, but it can be, in fact it must be, passed on to others. And without our willingness to meet that condition, we cannot appropriate the benefits of God's grace towards us. So the servant's lack of compassion in the story showed, in a sense, that he had never really received the gracious forgiveness that the king had offered him. Certainly, he accepted with relief the legal cancellation of his financial debt, but he had not internalized the principle of grace that lay behind this cancellation. And it was his failure to internalize the principle of grace meant, in a sense, the king's pardon had never actually been received. It kind of boomeranged back. So it's not so much that the king revoked his earlier forgiveness as recognized that the forgiveness had never actually been accepted. It was a gift offered that had never really been accepted because the central condition had not been met. And of course that same can apply to us. Our unpreparedness to forgive others in the community puts our own experience of God's forgiveness in serious question. Because if we refuse to contemplate forgiveness, and I'll say in a moment how hard this stuff is, but if we refuse to even contemplate that possibility, it shows that we have lost sight of our own staggering need of forgiveness. We've underestimated the enormity of the costliness of grace that has been extended to us. But most of all, we've failed to appreciate the moral obligations that come with grace. Grace cannot be repaid, but it can be, and it must be, passed on to others. So we are not a recipient of grace so much as a pipeline that channels grace uh, God's grace through us to others. Of course, that's not to say that it's ever easy to forgive. Forgiveness is often a painful and costly, and in some, some, some situations maybe a lifelong struggle. Forgiveness, I think, fundamentally is a matter of letting go of the power that a hurt or a hurter an injury that has been done to us or the person who has caused the injury to us, letting go of the power over us so that we can um, we cannot continue to be dogged by it. Just tonight before we came out, I saw a, a clip on uh, Stephen Colbert's show on TV. He had interviewed um, Jimmy Carter, who's 93, and he asked him about his political enemies, whether he had forgiven his, his political enemies. And he said, now these other policies, he just tries not to nurse the kind of 
bitterness of the past. And I think that's what forgiveness is about, is trying not to hold on to the thing that causes us a sense of, of, um, of harm or injustice. And coming to that point of being able to let go of that pain uh, takes time, and it's not something that we can easily short-circuit or, or, or even talk ourselves into. Because I think to come to a point of forgiveness, there is a kind of process that we often need to go through. In fact, I've come to think of it in terms of a series of needs that we have to have met before we can actually come to the place of forgiveness. I used to think that forgiveness was a kind of miracle that just came like a bolt out of the blue. And in some sense, that's partly true. But maybe it's better to think of forgiveness as a sign that we've We've, we've gone through the process of meeting the needs that the injury has, left, has created in us, and coming to the point where, where then forgiveness is a, is, a, is a kind of icing on the cake, or the kind of evidence that we've actually, we've actually dealt with the, the injury in our hearts. So before we can come to a point of forgiveness, we, we obviously need to accept that the injury has been done to us. I mean, one way we have of coping with the sense of harm is to try and talk ourselves out of it. That, you know, this, I really shouldn't be bothered by this. This really wasn't serious. So we can't forgive anything until we acknowledge that we felt hurt. Uh, and for some people, that, that, that's quite a challenge. We need to recognise the emotional withdrawal that inevitably happens when we are hurt. Uh, it's a sign that there's something to be addressed, that sense of drawing back. We need to acknowledge the pain or the sense of injustice or the sense of harm that we feel has been done to us. Uh, and sometimes we need to kind of externalise it by actually naming it and talking about it. Uh, I think those are kind of needs that we have to address uh, if we ever to come to the place where a sense of release from that, that sense of resentment uh, can happen. Uh, all that sort of stuff needs to happen before we are in a position to actually feel the, the, the reality of forgiveness. So we can't force ourselves to that. We can't talk ourselves into it through guilt. And I think whenever you talk about forgiveness, uh, you've got to be really careful because it's really easy to stir up in people a terrible sense of guilt that I still struggle with something. So you know, I think it's better then for us to think of forgiveness as a process more than an event. Uh, but I think the message of the parable, in other words, we, we need to be kind to ourselves when we struggle with hurt. But, um, our therapeutic age, we try hard to be kind to ourselves. But the message of the parable is still quite clear. Jesus says that we must be willing to enter into that process, however long and difficult and, and painful it may be, we must be ready to enter into that process, I guess to turn ourselves towards the goal that one day we'll come to the point of, of being able to let go of the injury. We must be prepared to do that if we are to be true to the God whose forgiveness we cling to for our own welfare. It's a kind of logical consistency. For the world to know what the kingdom of God is really like, what kind of king the God of Jesus 
is really like. What kind of merciful and compassionate God the God of Jesus is like. The community of Jesus must be a community of forgiveness, a community of reconciliation, a forgiven people that struggles to practice forgiveness as a way of life. After all, in the prayer that we've been using to frame tonight, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, it's not a Clayton's prayer, the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our sins. Use, use the way we deal with people who have hurt us as a measure for how you deal with with us, their God to us. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable petition. Um, forgive me in the same way that I can cope with the person who has injured me. Use that as a measure for the way you forgive me. And he went on after teaching the prayer in Matthew's Gospel to kind of exegete one, just one of the petitions so we have the petitions and just one that he afterwards in Matthew 6 offers a kind of additional commentary to it. And it's that one. He says, if you forgive people of their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive people their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And he also said before that, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So the parable of the unforgiving servant is a parable of the one who did not receive mercy because he did not show mercy.